always a, a great delight to be here. And it uh, seems like just yesterday, and it was kind of yesterday, yesterday, it was last month I was here. And I always like to update you on my goings on, but it's hard after a month what's going, what has uh, transpired, but a lot has transpired. And I'm wearing it. If you are very keen in observation, you will tell. Uh, I made a trip to New York City, which is the place of my birth in the first 21 years of my life, uh, two weeks ago. And uh, it's always a wonderful time to go to New York City, okay? It's just a lot of things to see and, and to reflect. But I have to uh, share with you some of the values I got in shopping um, because uh, I, I, you know, I, I was just reminded again that in New York City at this time, if you buy clothing, there is no tax which is an incredible thing. It's like a nine, 10% discount, okay? Now, the first thing is the article of clothing is I got new shoes at the Nike outlet, and they already have outlet prices, but it was 30% off outlet price, no tax, $30 out the door. Uh, uh, these, <laughs> this is, uh, but there's more, but there's more. I, I went to uh, the Highline area, Chelsea Market, if you ever go to New York City, there's a kind of a, a two-mile uh, walk garden on the west side, and there's a, uh, a place called Chelsea Market, and on one end there's artisans. And uh, I don't know if the last times I preached, I, I have no uh, wedding ring on. And the reason is because I gained 40 pounds since I was married. And you know, after 40 pounds, it's like, it's pretty tight. You know, I like my finger, you know? <laughs> I, I like, the, <laughs> you know, just like this, 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 this turning blue. And so um, I got this unusual ring. I don't know if you could see it, but there's a cutout here which means uh, if you need it smaller, you get a hammer, you knock it down, and, and if you need it big, you get a crowbar and you open it up. What makes it unique is it uh, was formerly a, a fork. Uh, <laughs> this was part of the fork area. And so, uh, I don't know, I'm kind of weird. <laughs> there was a saying that I saw in, on, on one of the artisans, they say, uh, why do I need psychotherapy when I could be weird by living in New York City? Uh, uh, you know, it's so, uh, this is something, something uh, new here. And, uh, but when I go to New York, because I was born and raised there, I see my mother, uh, Lord willing, every year, and we celebrated her 90th birthday, and my sister still lives there, my older sister and her husband uh, live there, and we have a time of, oh, we, I spent six days, we went out to eat like four, four days and things like that, and it brings a lot of time of reflection. When I'm in the Bay Area, I'm in the Bay Area since 1990, when I see my daughters and ones live in LA, the others in the East Bay, I see my grandchildren, it's about the present and the future. But I, when I go back to New York, it's about the past and where I am today. There's gonna to be a photograph that's gonna be shown, and as a handsome young man there, uh, <laughs> what's interesting is, uh, where this is taken. This is taken about two weeks ago. And uh, what is this place? Uh, this is where I spent the first seven years of my life. This is where my uh, parents lived and my brother and sister lived with me. Uh, you could tell it some, has something to do with 115. Okay. <laughs> and all I'd say is it's on Mott Street, which is a very famous street in Little Italy in Chinatown, okay? And I'm glad they updated and upgraded the place, uh, you know, and they had more security with that lock there, so if you, feel, <laughs> you feel a little safer there. You know, and you know, I'm pretty sure that's pretty strong uh, cellophane tape uh, over my head uh, with the 115. That's where I spent the first seven years of my life. And when I go back to New York, I'm 
I've journeyed in life for 60 years, and I think about where I came from and where I am now, and I think about the process because it is a process. Life is not measured in days, months, even years. It is measured in decades. That's the crazy thing. As Americans, we want things instantly, things to change, but it's decades, man, decades, and there's the longevity, and you begin to see life as, as you run this journey. This reflection I had about New York City and going back to the place of, it is literally my birth, like the first, I don't know, I, was my, you know, I wasn't born there, but I was born in the old Manhattan General Hospital. Reflection. And that's the theme of today's message. Because as Pastor Terry mentioned, uh, we're going to be studying the prophet Malachi, who is in the order of things, the last actual book of the Old Testament. There will be a time of quietness and silence, and then Jesus will burst on the scene. So this was the end of a generation. It was the end of how God operated, preparing the way for something new. And this is very, very important because the people of God has, okay, let's just say approximately about a thousand years, okay? Instead of reflecting or reminiscing of 60 years of my life, we're talking about what has happened a thousand years as God's ancient people have journeyed with God. Where are they? What does God's prophet Malachi begin to know about God and he needs to share with his people after a thousand years? And after this, it's basically a lifetime. And it's a very, very endearing. And the more I read this passage, and I, I used to teach Old Testament, okay, the more I saw myself in this passage more and more to the point that um, it just changed the whole tenor of how it would approach this message. The passage, which is quite lengthy, is in front of you. And I'm going to read certain portions and then have a sort of a principle and then continue to read. We start with the first chapter, Malachi chapter one, and we're gonna read one verse. And it kind of sets the tone of the whole book. It's a very unusual question because God deals with the very most important issue that is sort of dealing him and, and is causing him some concern. It goes like this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. Jacob is a.k.a. Israel, I have loved you. It's a declaration as clear as you can have of God saying to his ancient people, I have loved you. But the response of the people is, we don't think you love us. Now, I'm thinking about this. And I'm saying, what a whacked group of people. These people are so wicked, evil, God so loving, you know. Don't they know that Jesus died on the cross for them? Okay, Jesus doesn't die on the cross for them at this time. He will, okay. But the more I thought of this, the more I realized that this wasn't, was, was some issue with some like, like fallen, depraved generation of 2,000 years ago, you know. Because the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this was a default response of people who live in life, who, who, who actually believe in, in Jesus, okay, and follow God and go, go to church. I saw my, my own life. There's going to be a principle that's going to be shown on the screen. 
because the first issue is about God and the fact that circumstances do not determine whether he loves us. In this passage, the historical setting is important to understand what is being conveyed in this sort of uh, prophetic message. In the thousand years of the people of God's existence in the Old Testament, we are coming to the end, and the end is not the highlight or the, the gold medal moment of Israel's existence. As a matter of fact, the highlight and the largest part where they had the greatest uh, influence and the greatest national wealth was during the time of David and, 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 and his son, King Solomon. And after that came a slow demise and then a real downturn when the superpowers around the world became to dominate Israel. So much has Israel fallen that they no longer can have a king. Israel was now ruled by governors because other kings of foreign powers were dominating them. Subjugation by foreign nations. Not only politically did they have fallen off the map, but financially they were no longer where they used to be, where people would come and give tribute to the uh, Israelite king. Now they're giving tribute to other people and their building projects and how they built the nation is, is the basic I'd say is uh, the, the glorious past. There are other books that talks about how they were bemoaning the fact that as they rebuilt the Old Testament temple of God, it doesn't even look close to what it used to be. It's a shadow of what it was. And so instead of saying, oh, what a fallen group of people, I realized that it was a common thread in people I see in it myself. For when you and I experience a downturn in life, almost always the response, especially if you are a spiritual person, is where are you, God? I mean, we're not talking about a blip. We're talking about a massive downturn. We're talking about you getting a job, and now you're getting half your pay. Okay? Which is a common thing in this economy. You know, you're, you make money when you're young. When you get older, you're sort of like you try to get a job. You realize when you're 56, you're not marketable anymore. That's reality. And don't tell me that you don't feel bad when that happens because when I felt bad when it happened to me. And it happens in different areas of life. It can happen to your health. It can happen to your, your, your earning power. It can happen to relationships. And it would be great for me to say to you, life always ends higher. But you and I know that's not true. Sometimes in life, it does end higher. But for many of us, especially as we journey for the decades. There is a drop. And we say, where are you, God? That's very natural. For what was being experienced by this ancient generation is something that we experienced in every generation that follows who has a spiritual journey with God. And the thing is, here it is. 
as the people of God and what Jesus tries to begin to change us is the realization that the circumstances in life with the downturns does not determine the degree of how much God loves you. It's very, very important. I was watching uh, the Olympics, you know. It appears that Americans have won every other event. Uh, next year, that we will win every event. I mean, I could, next year, next, there's no Olympics next year. That's why we'll win every event, you know. <laughs> there was one event that was very interesting. There's a runner by the name of Allison Felix. And she's uh, old in terms of older in the standard. She's in, in the early 30s now. And I think this is her third Olympics, okay. And Allison Felix is the most decorated female track Olympian. More medals. But during this Olympics, there was a race where she was favored to run, win the 400, which is sort of her forte, penciled in to win. And she was w winning until the final step when a Jamaican leaped headfirst on a hard track and edged her out. This was her race. You know, for me, I'm just happy to run, you know? <laughs> but when you're the favorite person, if you don't win, Okay. I always wondered whether Allison Felix was a person of faith. So last night I checked, and lo and behold, she was. Her father was a pastor, and is a pastor, and actually a New Testament professor at Master's Seminary in Los Angeles. And she wrote the day after she lost, she said she was disappointed. But she ended her blog her post with this phrase, but all glory to God. All glory to God. You know, some of us are in a downturn and it's a disappointment. Don't let it convince you that God does not love you. He has demonstrated his love through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's the best, and one of the hardest things to learn in life? That you, when you begin to downsize relationally, financially, physically, you can say, all glory to God. <laughs> you know how hard that is, I'll tell you. I can throw stones at these people for you to actually live it and to say it. Oh, cow. <laughs> okay, I just want to say that is hard. It's one thing to preach it, it's another thing to live it, you know? Man, that's a hard thing, you know? It's a hard thing. Well, we got to go on, you know? We got to go on. <laughs> the New York part's going to come. We got to go on, you know? Who's this guy? Malachi chapter 2, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? 
says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, have, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why do you offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you, or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. We'll just kind of end there. Now, what's very interesting, it's, it's, in the Old Testament, there was these very, very high standards of sacrifice. It had to be like blemish-free, perfect, you know, USDA-grade, you know, triple, quadruple-A, organic, free-range, you know, everything, you know. And anything substandard was not considered acceptable by God. But what is interesting, it is not the fact that they were offering substandard offering, but the attitude behind the offering. Because with action, there is always the motivation behind it, why you do the action. And in the eyes of God, that is very, very important. Not that the action is not important, but the motivation that precedes the action is, is of more importance. And at issue here is honor. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my honor? There's going to be a second principle coming up on the screen. It's about faith. There's a difference between obligation and true love, a.k.a. true honor. I'll put it in, this, in those words. Because these ancient people, it's not that they weren't offering things to God. They were. Okay, a little substandard, okay? God notice is not passing the food inspectors, okay? But behind that is this feeling that God notices beyond the act, the lack of honor they have before God. You know, when I first read this, I said, what a decrepit people. Don't you see God has eyes? Don't you always say inspectors? His angels are inspectors. They got little thermometers or whatever, you know? Chain, make sure that the temperature of the food is right so it's not spoiling, you know? But the more I read that, and there comes always a point in my sermon development that I turn it inward. And it's always when it turns it inward that it very gets very, uh, 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 very convicting toward myself. Because when I turned it inward, and I said, well, what, how did this apply about me? I'm say, I said to myself, man, I'm just like this, man. I'm just like this. You know, I became a Christian uh, about a, a half a mile from that 115 picture in a little missions church in downtown Manhattan, okay? I've been a Christian for 53 years, and I've been a pastor for two, going on three, three decades now. I'm in ministry a long time. I've been a Christian for a long. And I think I'm very, very competent in what I do, okay? Just want to say. <laughs> but I want to tell you, I am so competent in what I do that many, there were times in my ministry, in my walk, I just mailed it in. Because you know what? You think it's just what people see and the act and the ritual and the tradition. God saying, hey, Jeff, where's the honor? But I do it well. Who cares you do it well? 
Where's the honor? Are you really doing it for me? Or are you doing it as a bunch of obligation, you know? That's your job. And for God, when it comes to faith, he understands the difference between obligation, mailing it in, and people who truly have an honor and love for him. And I'll tell you, it is so easy. Anyone who has done anything for a long period of time, and we're talking decades, realizes how hard it is to keep your head from going in to cruise control. Relationships comes in. Sure, it's fun, the first month, year. The decades roll in. And I'll just tell you, you could be there and not be there. Work, same thing. Serving God, same thing. It's on, and, and here's the thing. After a thousand years, God is speaking to Malachi, says, look, it's never about cruise control. It's never about mailing in because you have to understand who you are worshiping, who you are serving. Where is the fear of God? Don't you know who he is? And a lot of times we forget who he is and we replace it with it's all about what I need to do. And there the honor slips. There's a third one. It's in Malachi 2. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and your wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has the remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord. Now what was happening back then? Now, in the history of Israel, these people just come back from a long captivity. Their uh, whole nation was sort of like in, 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 in prison in, a, in the foreign country, better known as Babylon at this time. And they come out, and there are new inhabitants in the land. And for a lot of people now, their spouses don't look as attractive as the new inhabitants in the land younger. And though they do not have the same faith, in the God of Israel as the spouses did, the people were more exciting. And so there was a huge issue of um, breaking up of relationships. Now, I don't want to deal about this. I think it's self-explanatory. But there's a principle about here that transcends this because within it is this aspect of worship. These people are crying and groaning in public worship, but God's not answering them. And here's the point. Show to number three, behavior. Life's decisions are as important as public worship. I might even change life's decisions are more important than public worship or is the foundation of public worship. And I don't want to say that public worship is not important. I'm saying it's, it's how, as you live life, that is what God is looking at. You see, these people, they're crying, they're groaning. I'm thinking they have a good time. 
to have a good time in worship, okay? But from the eyes of God, he's saying, look, I don't care how many times you cry, okay? The way you live your life in the most intimate and hidden areas of life is what I'm looking at. So how dare you come to me, worship, gather to worship, have a good time of worship, and then in the other areas of your life, you know, it's like you're treating people bad. You're not being faithful. Yeah, but, you know, that's the nature of religion, you know? We live our private, that's separation between church and state, right? God doesn't care about our private life, you know? It's only about, no, 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 no. The way that God deals with our private life, it comes into the public worship, and you always understand it. it. You can't separate it, but we always do. Especially in America, we always do. Two nights ago, my wife and I were talking about a relative, and a comment was made about a relative. And this relative is, is, is very involved in church. Seemingly has a verse for everything. But a comment was made about this person, saying that there's an aspect of this person that is very bad. Because this person, knowing all these verses, and serving in church treats his family the worst. And treats them the worst. And that's what it's talking about here. You can do everything for God, but the decisions you make in life in the other areas that outside of the corporate worship reality bring it in as, as the foundation of your worship. And don't see it as a disassociation. Private life, public life, it's separate. Private life, public worship is separate. No, it's not. Perhaps in your workplace it is because they can't hold you accountable for how you live your life in the workplace. But I'll tell you, that's the nature of Christ and God. There is not a dissociation, but there is now an uplifting of how the faith changes the relational and intimate areas of our life. In such an aspect, our Lord is transformational and extremely radical in how he approaches connecting the dots in life. The final passage, Malachi 3. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand his when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Israel and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Now, there's many themes about this. This is very messianic. It's about a prediction about Christ's coming. But some of the things I want to just go quickly, it talks about purification so that we may present, live our lives 
no longer disassociated with the other aspects of emotion and life choices, but in connection to present offerings in righteousness and righteousness as it is emphasized in Malachi is not meeting up to the specs that the government has sort of met as a standard. It is the emotion, it is the life choices connected with your life with God. There is a now a union and that is the purpose of Christ. For the fourth principle will come up. Christ, we need to allow him to refine us. I'll tell you, because without Christ, I'm just like these people, man. I'm just like them. I'm a slave to circumstance. <sighs> Mail it in. I separate my public persona from my private. And it takes now Malachi saying, you know what, the prophets didn't, couldn't make the change, but Christ will, and he will bring the union of life choice, emotion, and worship. But you know what? I got to tell you, it is the end. It is the journey of transformation and change. And the process of that that is one of the most remarkable aspects of my journey in these last 53 years with Christ. From a default understanding of religion and religious activity to a finally understanding that it is Christ who is molding me and changing me in ways that are connecting everything so that I'm a calmer and more joyous and less, hip, less hypocritical person in life. That I can say that I am no better than any of these people who lived during Malachi's generation, but what changes me is not myself, but it is Christ who has begun to transform me and change me. And I have to say before the final prayer, okay? You need to allow Christ to begin and to continue to change you because there will be many times we will slip back into these default modes of religion. Some of you need to love the people in your life better. Others need to find a confidence in God in the downturn. For others, Stop mailing it in. It is God who you're dealing with. This is a great book, man. I'm impressed by Malachi, man. Allow me to give the final prayer. And after that, we'll receiving of offering and a final song. Our Heavenly Father, I pray for these, my friends. May your grace be upon these friends of mine, uplift them, Lord, in Christ so that we are not just religious people, people of obligation, but we are a people who are unified in our love for you and our honor to you and the love we have for people around us. And there's a connection of all of this in Christ. For we pray this in Jesus' name.